Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week, we've got some wild cases on particularly serious crimes, aggravated felonies, CIMTs, and more, including a trio of big ones from, who else? The Ninth Circuit. Now, Saturday happened to be my birthday, and I had some jokes to say about it, but I can't bring myself to do it because Justice Ginsburg passed away two days ago. She seemed like an amazing person, and I'm so sad for her family. But from the little I know about her, I believe she was likely at peace. Like many of you listening, I'm angry that the President and Senate Majority Leader have vowed to replace Justice Ginsburg after refusing to even give Judge Merrick Garland a vote for eight months at the end of the Obama presidency. And I fear what all of this might do to the country. And I fear for myself, because if I'm being honest, my primary concerns were political, following the passing of a wonderful and important human being. I wish that wasn't so. I share this because I don't know what else to do, besides vote and donate to campaigns, and I have a feeling that a lot of listeners feel the same about all of it. But I will not give up hope, and I will instead analyze a bunch of cases for my loyal army of fellow immigration nerds. Onward, we march. We're going to start with the three big cases out of the Ninth Circuit this week, but before we do, I'd like to just first quickly note that the Ninth Circuit amended its July 21st, 2020 decision in Gonzalo Dominguez v. Barr, a case about drug trafficking aggravated felonies, divisibility, manufacturing versus delivery of a controlled substance, particularly serious crimes, and more. The original decision was discussed on the July 27th episode of the podcast, so check it out. Moving on, we've got Ramos et al. v. Wolf et al., published by the Ninth Circuit on September 14th, 2020. In Ramos, a divided Ninth Circuit panel vacated a preliminary injunction that had prevented the Trump administration from terminating temporary protected status for about 300,000 individuals from Sudan, Nicaragua, Haiti, and El Salvador, and placing the future of their 200,000 U.S. citizen children in limbo. In so holding, the divided panel held that the TPS statute divested the court of jurisdiction to hear plaintiffs' claims under the Administrative Procedures Act and that there were not even any, quote, serious questions, end quote, presented as to whether the Trump administration violated the Equal Protection Clause when it terminated TPS. Or in simple terms, that there was not even any serious questions that the Trump administration had racial motives for terminating TPS for these four countries. Practically speaking, the plaintiffs will likely move for en banc rehearing of the decision, and maybe even for Supreme Court review and the Ninth Circuit won't likely issue a mandate which kind of ends the case until after the election. Moreover, the Sajay v. Trump preliminary injunction out of the Eastern District of New York, 
of which my law firm is co-counsel and which is currently on appeal to the Second Circuit, separately prevents the termination of TPS for Haiti, for now. The decision is 107 pages long, including Judge Christian's 50-page dissent, but I think there are two quotes that stand out of that dissent that I'd like to discuss. First, like the discovery in the Saget case, the discovery in the Ramos case shows an administration disregarding prior practice to achieve its stated goal of terminating TPS. In doing so, the plaintiffs believe that the evidence shows that the administration was motivated by race, and certainly that it completely disregarded the actual facts on the ground of the four targeted countries. For example, Judge Christian in dissent quotes then-director of USCIS Lee Francis Cisna, essentially the second most important individual in deciding to terminate TPS, who in relation to the Sudan country conditions memo, wrote to his subordinates, quote, This memo reads like one person who strongly supports extending TPS for Sudan wrote everything up in the recommendation section, and then someone who opposes extension snuck up behind the first guy, clubbed him over the head, pushed his senseless body out of the way, and finished the memo, end quote. The reason, of course, for all this is because, as the discovery in these cases clearly shows, the memo, like the Haiti memos, were written by country condition experts first, but then hastily and dishonestly edited by political appointees within DHS and USCIS. In the words of Judge Christian, quote, The consequences of the majority's decision are monumental, but the majority's reasoning is deeply flawed, end quote. I hope the Second Circuit agrees. And that is Ramos et al. v. Wolf et al. Moving on, we've got Barre v. Bar, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 16th, 2020. This case is about particularly serious crimes, asylum-only proceedings, and stowaways, the latter of which, quite frankly, never come up, so I'm pretty excited. Mr. Barre came to the U.S. from Somalia in 1996 as a stowaway on a ship. Because he was a stowaway, immigration law requires that he be placed in asylum-only proceedings, meaning that the only relief available to him before an immigration judge was asylum, withholding, and protection under the Convention Against Torture. And he received asylum in 1997. For reasons that are just incomprehensible to me, Mr. Barre did not adjust to lawful permanent resident status or LPR status after one year when he became eligible. And over a decade later, DHS moved to reopen his asylum case and terminate his asylum status because he was convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm under 18 U.S.C. sections 922 G1 and 924 A2, and he was sentenced to 54 months imprisonment. The immigration judge granted the motion and terminated Mr. Barre's asylum grant, finding first that his conviction was an aggravated felony and a particularly serious crime, and that therefore he was now barred, pun not intended, but intentionally left into my script so I guess it was intended, for asylum and withholding of removal. Mr. Barre then requested that the IJ permit him to adjust to LPR status, presumably through his U.S. citizen wife. But because the IJ had reopened asylum-only proceedings, the IJ held that Mr. Barre could not apply for adjustment of status. He could only apply for asylum, but he was ineligible for asylum because of the conviction. 
The IJ also denied Mr. Barre's claims for withholding of removal and torture convention protection, and so ordered Mr. Barre removed to Somalia. The Ninth Circuit agreed with both holdings, and here's why. And hold on to your horses, because it's a lot. Addressing first whether the possession of a firearm by a felon is a particularly serious crime under immigration law that bars a non-citizen from asylum and withholding of removal. Recall that to be a particularly serious crime that automatically bars a non-citizen from obtaining asylum, a crime must simply be an aggravated felony. But to be a particularly serious crime that automatically bars a non-citizen from withholding, it must be an aggravated felony and the non-citizen must have been sentenced to at least five years in prison. If, as here, the non-citizen wasn't sentenced to at least five years in prison, or if the crime isn't an aggravated felony, the particularly serious crime analysis for both asylum and withholding of removal is governed by the BIA's three-pronged test in its 2007 decision, Matter of NAM. Under matter of NAM's first prong, quote, if the elements of the offense do not potentially bring the crime into a category of particularly serious crimes, the individual facts and circumstances of the offense are of no consequence, end quote, and the analysis stops. Mr. Barre's very smart lawyers made a bunch of arguments before the Ninth Circuit, but primarily argued that possession of a firearm by a felon does not have the elements needed to even potentially bring it within the category of particularly serious crimes under matter of NAM, because it is merely a status offense. That is, conviction doesn't require violence or evil intent, just that the defendant is a felon and that he had a firearm, kind of like a strict liability crime. The Ninth Circuit rejected the argument. When considering whether the elements of an offense potentially make it a particularly serious crime under matter of NAM's first prong, quote, the BIA is to place the alien's conviction along a spectrum of seriousness, end quote. And to be potentially particularly serious under the first prong, the Ninth Circuit requires, quote, a low standard, end quote. Felon in possession meets that standard, thereby allowing for the matter of NAM analysis to continue to the second and third factors. Turning to those second and third factors, they require an analysis of, quote, the type of sentence imposed and the circumstances and underlying facts of the conviction, end quote. The Ninth Circuit held that the IJ and the BIA conducted the proper analysis, and so let their decision stand. Specifically, it held that the IJ isn't limited just to the facts that go to the elements of the crime, here being a felon and possessing a firearm, but rather can consider lots of facts surrounding the conviction. For example, the reason that Mr. Barre had a firearm, how many firearms he had, and what his underlying felony conviction was. Having found the crime particularly serious, the Ninth Circuit then turned to the adjustment of status argument. And that argument was really smart and really complicated, too. Mr. Barre's attorneys argued that as an asylee, if DHS wanted to remove him, they should have put him in removal proceedings, like they do with all other non-citizens who have been admitted into the United States. If in removal proceedings, Mr. Barre could have applied for adjustment of status. The Ninth Circuit rejected that argument. Because while it is correct that asylees can be placed in removal proceedings under Section 240 of the INA, immigration law also allows DHS to reopen asylum proceedings to terminate asylum, which if terminated will put the non-citizen back into the status of having no status at all. That's what DHS chose to do here, which, 
even though it totally screwed Mr. Barre and happened to put him back in asylum-only proceedings because he had been a stowaway, it's perfectly lawful for DHS to do under the regulations. But just to be clear, DHS could have served Mr. Barre with an NTA that would have likely allowed him to adjust to LPR status in removal proceedings. DHS chose not to. According to the Ninth Circuit, under those circumstances, where an asylee's status is terminated and the non-citizen is put back into asylum-only proceedings before an IJ, only USCIS can adjust the, can adjust the non-citizen to LPR status. And here, the immigration judge did not provide Mr. Bari time to apply for adjustment of status before USCIS. Like I said, the decision is very complicated, but that's the gist of it. Quite the lawyering, but an unfortunate result for Mr. Barre. Here's some more to make your head spin. Returning to the asylee issue. Mr. Barre also argued that even though he lost his asylee status, he once had status. And so when he lost it, he shouldn't have been returned to asylum-only proceedings because he had stopped being a stowaway, and he had become an asylee at some point in the past. If that's correct, Mr. Bari could apply to adjust to LPR status, despite the fact that he had lost his asylee status. The Ninth Circuit rejected this argument too, disagreeing with both Mr. Bari's attorney and oil, and holding that when a non-citizen obtains asylee status from another position, like being a stowaway, the non-citizen does not stop being a stowaway. He just obtains another status in addition, that of an asylee. This is different from when a non-citizen changes from asylee to LPR status. There, the non-citizen ceases being an asylee and metamorphs into an LPR. And if you're curious, that latter holding about LPR adjustment and metamorphosis is pretty good for the non-citizen and comes from a 2017 BIA decision and decisions out of the 2nd, 4th, and 5th circuits. Next, for circuit court practitioners and particularly those in the 9th, the court was pretty generous in holding that Mr. Bari had properly exhausted his particularly serious crime arguments before the BIA. So review this case if you run into potential exhaustion issues in circuit court. Diving deeper into particularly serious crimes and returning to the, quote, spectrum of seriousness, end quote, the Ninth Circuit stated that it has previously held that, would it, that it would expect aggravated felonies, quote, to fall towards the more serious end of the spectrum, end quote, and be among, quote, the types of crimes most likely to be particularly serious crimes, end quote. Here, the conviction was an aggravated felony, so Mr. Barre lost. The logic allows for the inverse argument. Where a crime is not an aggravated felony, it arguably falls towards the other end of the particularly serious crime spectrum. Finally, for those really smart listeners wondering why Mr. Barre even cares about whether he is jurisdictionally eligible to apply to adjust to LPR status if he's been convicted of an aggravated felony, the answer is because asylees who apply to adjust to LPR status do not do so under INA Section 245A, but rather INA Section 209, and can waive nearly all grounds of inadmissibility, quote, for humanitarian purposes, to assure family unity, or when otherwise in the public interest, end quote. And that is the very complicated Bar A V Bar. 
Next is Safari Envy Bar, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 17, 2020. This case concerns whether the ever-present California Penal Code Section 245A1, assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm, is a crime involving moral turpitude, or CIMT. The Ninth Circuit had this issue before it in 2014, when it went in bonk in Sorone v. Holder, but punted to the BIA to decide the issue in the first instance. The BIA did so in 2017, in matter of Wu, holding that, yes indeed, Cal Penal Code Section 245A1 is a CIMT. In this case, today, the Ninth Circuit has deferred to matter of Wu under the Supreme Court's 1984 Chevron decision, and has held that California Penal Code Section 245A1 is categorically a CIMT. The Ninth Circuit reached this conclusion by essentially adopting the analysis from matter of Wu. To quote the Ninth Circuit, and to give credit to some pleasant legal writing, quote, a crime involving moral turpitude denotes an elevated level of wrongfulness that bespeaks some measure of moral depravity on the part of the perpetrator. In determining whether a crime involves this sort of enhanced reprehensibility, we consider the actus reus and the mens rea in concert to determine whether the behavior they describe is sufficiently culpable to be labeled morally turpitudinous." End quote. In other words, a conviction that requires a high degree of harm may be a CIMT, even if it only requires a lessened mental state. And a crime with a heightened mental state, like, say, intentional conduct, may be a CIMT, even if it doesn't require serious harm. Think of the analysis kind of on a sliding scale, which requires, quote, the building together of a sufficiently reprehensible actus reus and a sufficiently culpable mental state. End quote. Mix them together, and you've got one tasty CIMT. A crime like Cal Penal Code Section 245A1 kind of falls in the middle, and if it was simply an assault crime, it almost surely wouldn't be a CIMT. But this is an aggravated assault crime, and requires the use of a deadly weapon. Even though this crime, and all assault crimes in California, doesn't require a mental state of specific intent to injure, it does require a mens rea akin to criminal recklessness. And this, combined with the aggravating deadly weapon factor, suffices to make the crime a CIMT. I stress that the analysis is incredibly crime-specific, so this decision is only really important as to Cal Penal Code Section 245A1 itself, and maybe some other aggravated assault crimes in other states. As to this case in particular, because Mr. Safarian has been convicted of a CIMT, he is inadmissible to the United States, and therefore, he is ineligible to adjust to lawful permanent resident status through his U.S. citizen wife, absent an INA Section 212H waiver. The IJ denied the waiver, and the Ninth Circuit lacks jurisdiction to review that denial of a waiver, and so, Mr. Safarian will be removed to Armenia. One note on matter of Wu and the CIMT analysis. Even after this decision, there is still hope, even for assault crimes. There are many cases out there explaining why such crimes are not CIMTs, including the BIA's 1976 case, Matter of Medina which remains good law and in fact was distinguished by the BIA in Matter of Wu and the Ninth Circuit in this case. Under Medina, if the assault crime, quote, does not require that the perpetrator subjectively perceive the risk posed by his or her conduct, end quote, 
the assault crime will not likely be a CIMT. Remember, to constitute a CIMT, including if it's based in assault, the mental state must usually always be above criminal negligence or mere recklessness. So practitioners argue that your statute is more like the one in Matter of Medina and less like the one in Matter of Wu. And that is Safari NV Bar. Next up, we've got a pair of aggravated felony cases out of the Second Circuit. The first is Rodriguez v. Barr, published by the Second Circuit on September 18, 2020. This case is about the sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony under Section 101A43A of the Immigration Nationality Act. Mr. Rodriguez is an LPR who was convicted under New York Penal Law Section 130.653, which criminalizes subjecting another person to sexual conduct when the person is less than 11 years old. Mr. Rodriguez argued that his conviction did not constitute a Section 101A43A sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony. That removability provision requires application of the categorical approach, which requires a comparison of the elements of the state offense with the federal offense. Here, comparing sexual abuse of a minor under Section 101A43A of the INA with the New York offense that Mr. Rodriguez was convicted of. Mr. Rodriguez argued that his New York conviction covers more conduct than the federal definition of sexual abuse of a minor because to obtain a conviction, the defendant need not touch a victim's intimate body parts. This is broader than one federal definition of sexual abuse, specifically that used under 18 U.S.C. Section 3509, which is limited to touching intimate parts of the body. Mr. Rodriguez argued that this made his New York conviction broader than the federal removable offense, and so did not make him removable. The Second Circuit inferred as much in 2008 in Jameis v. Mukasey, but didn't actually directly make that holding. And here, the Second Circuit officially disagreed with the 2008 inference and Mr. Rodriguez's argument, and found that the conviction indeed matches Section 101A43A. It held that New York Penal Law Section 130.653 requires both that the victim be under the age of 11 and that the perpetrator's contact with the victim be for the purpose of gratifying sexual desire, and that this satisfies the BIA's definition of sexual abuse of a minor in its 1999 decision, Matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez, no relation to the Mr. Rodriguez in this case. The Second Circuit held, as it has in the past, that the definition of sexual abuse of a minor is not limited to that used at 18 U.S.C. Section 3509, but instead includes the expansive conduct described by the BIA in matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez. So, because the Second Circuit has previously deferred to the BIA's definition of sexual abuse of a minor made in Rodriguez-Rodriguez, and because New York Penal Law Section 130.653 does not criminalize more conduct than that described by matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez, the conviction of Mr. Rodriguez in this case matches the sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony at Section 101A43A of the INA. Not much else to note with this one, so we'll move right along. And that is Rodriguez v. Barr.
Rounding out the second circuit, we've got Santana v. Barr, also published on September 18th, 2020. This case involves an aggravated felony theft offense under INA Section 101A43G. Like Section 101A43A, the analysis also requires application of the categorical approach. So here we go. Mr. Santana was an LPR from the Dominican Republic who was convicted of criminal possession of stolen property in the third degree in violation of New York Penal Law Section 165.50 and was sentenced to one to three years imprisonment. DHS alleged that the conviction made him removable because it matched the definition of an aggravated felony theft offense as used at Section 101A43G of the INA. Whether it does requires application of the categorical approach. Section 101A43G of the INA defines an aggravated felony theft offense, quote, including the receipt of stolen property, end quote. Now, among other things, the generic definition of a theft offense requires that the property be stolen without consent of the owner. If property is stolen with consent, like, say, trickery or embezzlement, you have fraud, but not theft. Unlike a theft offense, New York Penal Law Section 165.50 allows for the stolen property at issue to be obtained with the rightful owner's consent, so that's broader than a theft offense. Despite this, the Second Circuit held that Section 165.50 matched the aggravated felony definition at 101A43G, because the correct comparison is not to a theft offense, but to a receipt of stolen property offense. It rejected Mr. Santana's argument that the word including in Section 101A43G means that receipt of stolen property is merely a subset of theft offenses, which would then require the same element of a theft offense. Instead, the Second Circuit deferred to the BIA's 2008 ruling in matter of Alde Dominguez, in which the BIA held that the word including at Section 101A43G means that, quote, the receipt of stolen property is not limited to receipt offenses in which the property was obtained by means of theft, end quote, but rather encompasses offenses that, quote, require only that the offender knowingly possess stolen property, regardless of how it was stolen, end quote. And so holding, the Second Circuit agreed with at least the Ninth Circuit on this issue. The Second Circuit also held that even though New York Penal Law Section 165.50 does not explicitly require an intent to deprive the owner of his property, a required element of the generic receipt of stolen property definition, that intent is inherent in the criminal statute, as the, quote, intent to deprive can be inferred from the requirement that the offender knew that the property was stolen, end quote. So Mr. Santana lost his case. One last observation. For what it's worth, DHS conceded before the BIA that Mr. Santana's other conviction for New York petty theft is no longer a CIMT under the Second Circuit's 2018 decision, Obaya v. Sessions. And of course, DHS conceded before the BIA that Mr. Santana's conviction for New York burglary is no longer a crime of violence aggravated felony due to the Supreme Court's 2018 decision, Sessions v. DeMaia. And that is Santana v. Barr. Shifting gears and moving to the First Circuit, we've got Gomez Medina v. Barr published by the First Circuit on September 15, 2020. 
Like some of the other cases discussed in recent weeks, this is another unable or unwilling to protect case from the Central American Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Seems to be a bit of a theme of the circuits in recent weeks. Mr. Gomez Medina is an asylum seeker from Honduras. Upon apprehension, he was found to have a credible fear of persecution, and so he was placed in removal proceedings to bring his claim before an immigration judge. He claimed that his father was shot in Honduras because his father was in a gang, but that he didn't die, and that in 2012, the men who shot his father began threatening Mr. Gomez Medina to tell him where his father was. They beat him three times and threatened to murder him. He fled Honduras shortly thereafter. The immigration judge found Mr. Gomez Medina credible, and that he had suffered harm that rose to the level of past persecution a finding in and of itself that asylum practitioners should cite to in future cases, as it is based on a common fact pattern of threats and beatings. But the IJ also then held that even though the nuclear family qualified as a particular social group in this case, Mr. Gomez Medina didn't establish that he was persecuted because of that group, rather than simply to ascertain the location of his father. The IJ also found that the Honduran government was able and willing to protect him because they created police reports, helped him on one occasion, and on another occasion, his attackers fled when they heard police sirens. The BIA affirmed. The IJ and the BIA also denied torture convention protection. The First Circuit ultimately ruled against Mr. Gomez Medina, even though it recognized that the BIA made at least one pretty bad mistake. But because the evidence didn't compel reversal of the IJ and the BIA's finding regarding whether Honduras is unable or unwilling to protect Mr. Gomez Medina, the First Circuit affirmed the decision. In the First Circuit, quote, the most telling datum is whether the local authorities responded immediately to each incident, end quote. And here, Mr. Gomez Medina didn't show that they did not. So, Mr. Gomez Medina was unsuccessful. But here's a gem on the one-year filing deadline required to be eligible to apply for asylum. So, after Mr. Gomez Medina was found to have a credible fear, he was released from detention, moved to Massachusetts, and didn't actually seem to have done anything with his case for about four years. This included the filing of an asylum application. He didn't file one until the removal proceedings heated up in 2019. But DHS conceded at his immigration court hearing that the one-year filing deadline did not apply to Mr. Gomez Medina because he was part of the Mendez Rojas v. Johnson class certified by the Western District of Washington in 2018. Namely, that class consists of individuals found to have a credible fear but not told by DHS of the requirement to file for asylum within one year. So practitioners, if you have similar one-year filing deadlines from credible fear findings in or around 2014, check out the Mendez-Rojas decision to see if your client, too, is excused as a class member. And that is Gomez Medina v. Barr. Next, we've got Du v. Barr, published by the Fifth Circuit on September 14, 2020. This decision is about asylum, the nexus requirement, political opinions, and anti-corruption in China. 
Mr. Du is from China and affirmatively applied for asylum with USCIS. USCIS denied his application and placed him in removal proceedings, where, as is his right under immigration law, Mr. Du applied for asylum and related relief before the immigration judge again. The crux of Mr. Du's claim regards confrontations he had with a local police chief over operating his small business in China and the requirement that he pay police money just to operate his business. Mr. Du filed a complaint against the police chief, and when he did, the police chief had him arrested and taken to a police station, where he was hit with a stick, slapped, and kicked for about four days. They threatened to kill him if he didn't stop complaining. Mr. Du argued in immigration court that he was persecuted, and therefore qualified for asylum, due to his anti-corruption political opinion in China. The IJ denied, finding Mr. Du not credible, in part because the date in the medical certificate he submitted to support his claims predated his story by one year. But the BIA didn't base its decision on that finding, meaning that the Fifth Circuit didn't review the credibility finding in this case either. Rather, the BIA denied based solely on a finding that, even assuming his testimony true, one central reason for Mr. Du's persecution was not on account of his race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, as required to obtain asylum in any circuit. Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA's finding. It held that for anti-corruption to constitute a political opinion, quote, the asylum seeker must demonstrate that the persecutors knew of his political belief and persecuted him because of it, end quote. This, Mr. Dew did not do, particularly under the deferential standard of review applied to review agency fact findings such as this. So, Mr. Dew lost his case. But here's a nice observation for asylum law. For what it's worth, the Fifth Circuit did recognize, relying on the BIA's 2011 decision in matter of NM, that, quote, Opposition to government corruption may constitute the expression of a political belief. End quote. Mr. Du didn't meet his burden here largely because his quote, previous acquiescence to local policemen's extortions when they came in his store asking for money or merchandise further undermines his claim of an anti corruption political belief. End quote. But if your client doesn't initially comply with corruption from the get go, practitioners, you'll have a better argument under matter of NM. And that is Doobie Bar. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. 
and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review and send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.